Thrive, flourish, unleash your buried treasure. This is the Exponentially Empowered Podcast with Joel Vine. Through conscious action and authentic self-connection, empower yourself to write your own script. I am joined by the one and only Mitchell Broderick, who is SVP of sales at Platform Marketing. He's also the very first ever alum of Praxis, discoverpraxis.com. And he's also just a super happy guy and a great thinker. So welcome, Mitchell. Thank you, Joel. I'm complimented. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, so speaking of Praxis, you were on the self-directed podcast with Mitchell Earl, and you were telling your story about yes, kind of launching your career and forging that path. And that's a big theme. We've had a few Praxis people on the podcast in the past and kind of forging one's paths is one of the themes of this podcast. But you mentioned in that interview, uh, one of your first missions was to simply not be poor. And I'm curious if you could flesh out the, the deeper motivations of that. Yeah, well, uh, you know, my childhood was less than archetypical. Um, just to sum it up, about the first decade of my life was a massive custody battle between my mother and father, and it was dirty. Um, and I mean, some of my first memories are relevant to the custody battle, to talking to judges and attorneys or waiting in attorney's offices and things like that. And the second decade, uh, you know, from 10 to like 18 or whatever, was vastly different in that my father was just completely out of the picture. We became estranged when I was 10. Um, and I actually haven't seen my father since I was 10. And then my mother had sole custody of us and he was in the military and he was shipped out. And there's a whole messy story for why things happened the way that they did. Well, my mother being a single mother then of myself and my two other siblings, my oldest sibling, the fourth one by this time was out of the house. Um, I mean, she worked very hard, but she, you know, she's been a factory worker her whole life. So she didn't make a lot of money and we struggled a lot. Um, we moved a few times. I went to like 15, 14 different elementary schools uh, in my wow. life because of all the moving. And you might hear my cat. She doesn't like it when I talk to other people. <laughs> she gets jealous. Um, but anyway, we were uh, pretty poor. Now on a, on a relative basis across the world, um, as I've gotten older, I realized that I was very fortunate and actually quite wealthy. But relative to the American experience, sure. pretty poor. Um, there was one winter we didn't have, there was one winter we didn't have the money to fill the propane tank in Michigan. So we went about two months without heat in the house. We just had a space heater for my room and a space heater for my mother's room. We moved it around to the various rooms we wanted to go be in. Uh, we called it playing Eskimos. Um, so just early on, I watched you know, how hard my mother worked. And then I watched my older siblings make uh, some errors of judgment on their own. 
And I was pretty much of the mindset that I wanted to learn as much as possible without experiencing it myself, right? I wanted to avoid making mistakes by watching other people make them. And one of them was that I wanted to be uh, successful monetarily um, from just a financial perspective. And that was just kind of the very first thing that I wanted to set out and figure out in life because I knew if I could figure that out and a lot of this stems from getting into self-help stuff because I was just very inquisitive um, and, and inherently interested in what, what is it that causes some people to be successful um, and, and you know make life what they want out of it versus other people. Because one thing about like going through my teams in the state of Michigan is Michigan had been bleeding population and had basically been a depressed economy for about 15 years by the time I moved there. And I mean, there's just a lot of dreariness and hopelessness and none of that's just exciting to be around. Um, it's very depressing and I didn't want to be a part of that. So I was pretty well convinced at a very young age that I wanted to figure out how do people make money and not be poor? Um, so more so than most people, I think I was just very money motivated and I wanted to find out the best way to not be poor. Incidentally, my personal life philosophy that I you know, sort of forged later um, after that premise falls very much in line with that. Um, and Ayn Rand, and I, I do consider myself an objectivist, so I'll probably reference Ayn Rand a few times. One of the things that she quotes is, I forget the reverend, but um, he's a reverend that she quotes that she agrees with. And he, and he basically says that the best way to help the poor is to not be one of them. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. And we're going to get into Ayn Rand a bit. And that's how we met was, was through a discussion group of her magnum opus, Atlas Shrug. But um, I, first of all, that's an, 14 or 15 elementary schools. That's wild. That's, that's, I, I moved uh, once when I was in sixth grade and that I'm still recovering from that. So that's a, it's pretty remarkable. Well, that, that was one of the things is that I knew pretty, and, and some of those I went to for two or three years. So there were some years where there was like three yeah. or four moves. Um, but one of the things I learned really early was that I needed to get out and learn how to talk to people and make friends or there was going to be some major problems with myself, right? So I learned how to, that's 100% why I'm the extroverted person that I am. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like there was a response basically from this sort of deprived environment in a, in a sense. And you saw a lot of, uh, there, was, there was poverty around you and difficulty and you wanted to not have that you wanted to really go, go the opposite direction is that fair to say that that was it was sort of that opposing motivation if you will or i'm curious i know you mentioned the self-help influences and in, in sort of that curiosity and other other like other figures other people that sort of gave you that permission if you will to go ahead and and do the, the opposite of what you had seen well not exactly um, there's not really anybody that I was close to in my life that had, it's hard to say this because uh, it, it, what I, I don't think it's going to come out the way that I mean it, <laughs> but I don't know how, to, how better to say it, but I didn't really have somebody who had gone out into the world and shaped it in their own vision that I could look up to. There was no one that I was close to 
who had done that until I was around 17 or 18. And that was because I was seeking those people out intentionally trying to find those people. Um, now I will say my grandfather, uh, on my father's side, uh, who I've been mostly estranged from is wildly successful multimillionaire has, he's a chemist for a chemical company in Michigan. Um, that was his whole career. He has 23 patents, um, very wildly successful guy. Um, and that relationship never really became super close. Although he bought me my first drum set, uh, and there's some other things I'm very grateful for, for that relationship. He also though, wasn't exactly the, he basically encouraged me to set out and live the life that I wanted to and told me that he would support me, um, you know, in any way that he could. And he was the motivation that, okay, I know someone can do it. And he's a wildly intelligent guy, but we weren't close. Um, and candidly, just not as close as I'd like to be. Yeah. He's, and stoic. I, he's a stoic man. Yeah. And I'm curious about that, be, be, about that influence because, you know, I think there's this sort of, from a psychological standpoint, there's this notion of self-concept where you have a notion you have an image of what is possible for yourself or what you believe is possible for yourself. And oftentimes I know for me, when we're growing up in, in environments and cultures where something like making a lot of money is not encouraged, it can be hard to, to pry yourself out of that. And um, I'm, I want to drill down a little bit into this sort of curiosity that you maintained in to following, following self-help books and, I mean, how, what, what's your relationship with curiosity itself in terms of, I mean, I think we're all born with it. I think you would agree, but was there, were you able to sort of maintain that? You know, oftentimes we lose that growing up, going through school. And was there, was that just something that you were, that flame was never entirely extinguished for you and you maintained it and then grew it? Oh yeah. Um, I, my mother would say that uh, number one, I, I didn't, make a lot of noise or cry a lot as a baby. But when I was three, I started talking finally because they were worried because I wasn't talking and I didn't shut, I haven't shut the hell up since. (laughs) And one of the things that was always frustrating was that I was always asking why and any children ask why, but I never stopped. Even when I worked at Taco Bell, which was my first job, the manager would get, the general manager would get frustrated and then the district manager would get frustrated or they would tease me because I would always ask, well, why are we doing a policy or why is a policy this way and not this way, which is more efficient? Or they would correct a way that I had innovated to make it more effective. And they would say, well, you really need to do it this way. If they come through for an inspection, they'll yell at you and I'd say, but this is better. Why do we have to do it that way? What is the process for getting things approved if it's a better process? So I'd say I never lost the curiosity. I've, I've, always wanted to figure out how to why something was the way that it was why a rule or a policy was the way that it was and why we can't improve on it it's such a beautiful element of human beings just this ability to ask why Uh, and so speaking of that i want to ask and branch out on this topic of why do you think i mean maybe maybe you don't agree with this but why does it seem that many people seem to fear making money? Because I, th- I think that's pretty common in the culture at large where there's an element of maybe shame or fear or tall poppy syndrome. 
where people don't want to stick out and, and be so happy or so wealthy that their fellow man is becomes envious and th- so that that's sort of like frowned upon where if, if they're too successful so there's almost a fear there do you agree with that i don't know that in, in any massive way that people are necessarily afraid of making money or they have a fear of making money i think it's probably more likely it's more likely something to do with being afraid that they don't possess the skills or talents that are valuable enough to make the money that they feel like they should be making. And that comes off as, so they're envious and that comes off as the way I have to justify that is I ought to demonize the people uh, who do have the talents or skills for which are valuable enough for people to pay them, you know, what, what they should be paid. So I think most of it is envy and the fact that they have not increased their skill set to whatever level of income that they desire. Yeah, there's definitely an element of envy there. Uh, I mean, people are, people are constantly settling when they could be doing one small thing every single day, moving towards a goal of something bigger. Um, and, and to be candid, if somebody wanted to make a hundred thousand dollars a year, there are a hundred, <laughs> there's a hundred million ways to do that. Um, so it's not something that there's no lack of opportunity for someone to make six figures a year if they wanted to. Now it's going to be hard with certain degree types. It's going to be hard, certain pathways but everybody can find a way to do it uh, if they actually apply themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes down to self-worth as well and self-esteem, the confidence to, to be able to, yes, to go does. pursue challenges and build new skills. Um, yeah. Just, yeah. This, I, I think it's, I think it is a combination of envy and some sort of, some sort of um, fear, at least from my perspective, a fear of ostracization from the group where it, when well, we're, we're growing up in like a self, like a culture, like when we're going to get into this, like selfishness versus selflessness and, and Ayn Rand and stuff. Um, in terms of there's such a, a strong culture of, of think about other people. And so do you think there's an element there in terms of giving oneself permission to make a hundred thousand dollars of that's, that's thinking about yourself. Some people are absolutely afraid of having their desires come to fruition. I would definitely think that's so. Um, there, I don't, and I don't know what it is, but if, if you publicly state to the world and your group of friends or whatever that you're reaching for a goal, you're reaching to, you know, get out and above potentially where they are, Um, because that's like your average of people that are around you, then you might be afraid if things start hitting and, and you get this momentum and then suddenly you are making the income that you desire and you're having the career success that you desired. If few people in your friend circle or that you hang out with, um, or that you did hang out with when you were in your teens or in your low twenties, if none of them are doing that, then that creates friction 
potentially between the group of people who aren't achieving their goals and you who now are. And it's scary. It's scary the thought that people might resent you or become resentful because you're not, they're not reaching the same success that you are reaching. Um, and I mean, human, we are self-sabotaging machines if we're not careful. Yeah. I know for me, I grew up with, you know, around a family and a, a culture where there's a lot of emphasis on the public sector and sort of being that noble public servant is something that was praised as well as nonprofit, um, something that's serving other people, but there's not, there's no desire for money, right? Like you just get enough money to, to make ends meet, ends meet to function, but anything above that is just luxury. So I, I know that I, I, I've in my sort of self-development, that's been a point of uh, in developing self-esteem and, and giving myself permission to say, I, you know, I want to make, I want to make six figures, you know, I mean, a few years ago, that was something that I noticed like a, a hesitancy about because, Oh, well then you're, all you're doing, Joel is thinking, all you're thinking about is your own profit. You're not actually thinking about serving other people. But of course, I think you would agree that actually when you're bringing in that kind of income, you're actually creating a lot of value for other people, but it's not always viewed like that. Well, like take, for example, my, the first thing I'd say is, I just want to comment, no nonprofits exist. No nonprofit will exist without for-profit enterprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a huge point. So that just needs to be stated. Secondly, all of my financial success comes from having to, having gone into to a sales role. Um, and there have been, you know, I learned to sell real estate first. I was mediocre. I never really made much money as a realtor, but I got foundational skills that set me up to be able to do the other, you know, business development roles that I've been in. And now, you know, I've been running sales for three years at a digital marketing company for realtors. So that's kind of just a unique blend of, of knowledge that I have is how to sell on a consultative basis and also understand how real estate works and combine that all. But every client that I sell to only purchases our product because they think they're going to get more out of it, right? So I have, we have hundreds of clients over the years now who have made money because they paid us money to market for them and bring in leads and build a brand for them in their local markets. And now I have, you know, I have a handful of clients, more than a handful, several handfuls of clients who never made more than 40 grand a year before they worked with platform. And now they're having months where they make 40 grand in a month. And they never thought that they would make that kind of money in their lives. And that's just fundamentally transformative. It means now that they have a lot more income to increase their quality of life, which means they're going out into their local economy. They're building a house. They're paying for more lessons, more extracurriculars for their children and just giving their families a better life. So I sleep pretty comfortably at night yeah. knowing that the commission I make is because I've bettered those people's lives by having a conversation with them about maybe you should use our marketing services. Here's what we do. What do you think? Yeah. It's creating win-wins. 
And I think well, and that's what's that's what's wonderful about having a free ish market system, because no one was coerced into working with us at any point. The only reason someone works with us is that they value what they think they can get out of it more than what they're giving us. But Mitchell, you see, money is not the meaning of life. It's about love. It's about connection and yeah. relationships. We need to. I think we, that we, too. we shouldn't be valuing money, right, Mitchell? I think relationships are the single most important thing about life. One hundred percent. And making money enables me to better service my immediate relationships and to better go out in the world and form greater relationships, profitable relationships in some cases in more ways than money. Uh, and also if you have good money, which we can get into an economics conversation at a different time, but if you have good money, then you can enable a whole society to increase their wealth and form better relationships with their families. Yeah, money Money is not going to solve all your problems, but it's going to solve your money problems. Money makes the world go round. Yeah, I think it, it goes back to win-win and, and as well as an abundance mindset. I think, you know, referencing again this culture in which I grew up, um, there's often this, I think, unspoken premise of uh, the, the pie is fixed. The pie is fixed. You can't you keep, there's only so much money in the world. You can't increase it. And so we have to be really scarce in our minds in order to make sure everyone has enough. But with actually in, in free markets, you can create win-wins and you can keep generating wealth for everybody. And, you know, if we had real free markets, probably we would have, you know, a lot more just leisure or more self-actualization because people wouldn't be trying to just get through their week in order to pay the bills, you know, and that's well, unfortunate. Gosh, if we're as prosperous as we are with the limited markets we have, I just can't even imagine. I can't even imagine how prosperous we could be if we had free markets and intelligent. Everybody would be smarter if we had free markets. They would have more knowledge and they'd have more useful practical knowledge uh, because whenever you are responsible for your own life, whenever each individual is responsible for his or her own life, they learn the things that they need to learn and quickly to advance their life down a, down a proper course. Right. Right. Yeah. So that leads nicely into Ayn Rand and that entire topic. So, cause you know, one, one thing she kind of talks about for the theme of Atlas Shrugged is just don't live for other people. You have no obligation to other people just live for yourself. And so before we get into the her, though, I'm, I'm curious what your perception of most people in the culture's perception of Ayn Rand is. I mean, I think most people hear that term or that, that, that name, and there's, there's, just, uh, there's just this association of, of extremism or just completely inconsiderate human being. And, you know, I think, you know, both you and I have our critiques of Ayn Rand and we can talk about those, but um, what do you think most people are thinking when they hear Ayn Rand? Uh, well, they, 
they probably think that she's some like right wing goddess and she hates the poor and she thinks the poor deserve i don't know death and despair and disease you know i imagine that people think that and they think that she hates people who do menial jobs who are anything less than like a titan of industry that's what i imagine the general view is and that she's otherwise an evil woman with an evil philosophy i think the the the, the, the caring about the poor is the number one concern of people who who sort of hear that name and, and object to her with most of the time probably not really di- diving in and trying to understand what she's actually saying um, is oftentimes well, I, a caricature. I would argue that the majority of people who have strong opinions about Ayn Rand have not read her work or have not tried to understand what she's saying. And in all fairness, in my own way, for people that their side might revere, I probably have not thoroughly read that work of that particular author. So yeah. to an extent, there's some rational ignorance there. Yeah, for, I mean, I, I'll admit I, other people. I haven't read Karl Marx. Now, the thing is, I'm completely open to reading Karl Marx. Um, I have no... Yep. I have no... Um, qualms about reading anything i'll entertain any idea and aristotle said the mark of an educated mind is to entertain an idea without accepting it well and one so, one one exercise i'm into and that i've done many many times over the years is that when i get someone willing to read i basically make an exchange and i say if you'll read this book for me then i will read a book of your suggestion that you know, as representative of your ideology for you, and then we can discuss. And there's a few people over the year who have taken me up on that. One of them right now uh, is a a friend who's actually reading Atlas Shrugged um, currently, and he has given me a book that's more representative of his philosophy so that we can have a a thorough discussion because we definitely disagree on a lot. So does Ayn Rand care about the poor? A lot more than any of the left wing does. It's really the case. She has such, yeah, I mean, like I watched one of her talks with on the Donahue show and back in the seventies and she wasn't the most maybe pleasant in one interaction with one of the audience members asking a question. Uh, I think she emphasizes this whole idea of evil way too much. She's otherizes people. Um, I think that, she didn't go fully, we agree on this, she didn't go all the way to the logical conclusion to have absolutely no government. Um, But um, her idea of, you know, respecting the self and encouraging people to pursue happiness and having happiness for its own sake, that's like a really respectful thing for anybody who has any amount of money, you know? It's like, I want you to be happy and you can, you have the ability to, with your own mind, right? To build yourself up. And also, and also from an economic, yeah, from an economic standpoint, she's seeing that, yeah, the Titans maybe have the most money, but the Titans are the ones that are producing, the ones that are producing the jobs in order to increase the size of the pie for everybody. That's why you see, you know, extreme poverty has just been not eradicated maybe, but I mean, it's been reduced dramatically in the past few decades and it's not talked about very often but it's because of the overall wealth creation 
So the poor have benefited from the Titans, right? Well, absolutely they have. And the, so this is kind of ironic. I actually make the argument that my conviction in laissez-faire capitalism is while not altruistic, obviously, that is extraordinarily individualistic, it is ultimately de facto utilitarian. Because if you have laissez-faire free markets or laissez-faire economy, and the government is out of your way, and each person, each man, each woman is free to set about the life that they, that they can make for themselves, then what we end up with inevitably is the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And that's just proven. Every country in the world which, which introduces freer markets raises their entire system. Even in China, where they don't have the, the civil liberty, certainly, but they adopted a market-based economy to try and you know finagle their way <laughs> into growth. And they have raised the standard of living for the Chinese citizens at, using that model. Now, they're obviously, I think that they're an absolutely evil regime, um, and I won't go into that. But nonetheless, it is, use, it is having a market-based system, having people free to utilize capital for what they think would best serve them and, and otherwise explore their own interests that increases the wealth of the economy of, of every individual. And not only that, when you increase the wealth of everybody now, if there does happen to be an individual who has some sort of, you know, adverse situation, then there's more to go around where people can be philanthropic. You know, I mean, there's really is in America. People want there to is, help. Yeah, there is a history and there's a culture. There's a, a large percentage, more so than Europe. There's more people giving money to charity um, than some of these more regulated countries. Well, America because they is, have the money continues and, to be America continues to be the most charitable nation on the planet year after year. Yeah, and if if it were you know truly free, it would just be. So imagine if they kept twenty five percent or thirty percent, uh, or sorry, imagine if all their taxes were slashed by fifty percent, and they suddenly had fifty percent more of their taxes as income, then they are now free to choose what philanthropic. How they're free to choose however they want to put that capital to use, whether that's creating another job because they can now reinvest it into their company or it's funding, you know, a, a, an institute that, or an organization, a charity that helps disabled people have better lives or start businesses or whatever. Um, I, yeah. I can go on and on. <laughs> so, so let's unpack this sort of dichotomy that's often per presented in the culture of selfishness versus selflessness. And that's another, I think, connotation or emotion emotionally charged um, reaction that people have about Ayn Rand who don't understand her um, is that she had, you know, she has a book called the virtue of selfishness. And so people see just the title and it's like, wow, she doesn't care about anybody. This is, this is insane. Um, and, and so that's, I think what, one of the other critiques is one of the fundamental critiques is like people want to care about other people and 
I think that's legitimate. I think we, like you said, relationships matter. We all want love. We all want connection. We don't want to see anyone else suffer. Um, and I, and I'm curious if you could comment on Rand's sort of philosophy of incorporating, does she incorporate the consideration of, of, of other people in terms of that is selfish? Is there any place for selfishness in that? Well, I think consideration for other people uh, is implicit in Rand's ideology uh, in objectivism. Consideration of other people is merely respecting the fact that as an individual, you have rights that I may not, I must not infringe upon. I may not defraud you. I may not initiate the use of physical force against you in any way. I may not steal from you. If we are going to interact with one another, we must interact with one another on honest basis and open terms, right? So that is the only consideration that mutual respect of us as individuals and the rights that we each have, that is the, like, the prime consideration. And if, if you enter into that and you understand that about every individual you interact with, no matter how much you may disagree about policies down the line, if everybody follows those things, then there's no problem with everybody being concerned with one's own, uh, with one's own interests. So Rand, uses a very specific definition of selfishness, an original definition, which is simply concern with one's own interests. And really, uh, of whom's, I, I hope that's right, of whom's interest ought I be more concerned with than my own? Yeah, yeah. I get, as far as I can tell, I get, at this point, 27 years, Maybe I'll have another 50 years, maybe less, on this spinning rock circling a star. And that's it. That's all I get. Why should I be concerned about millions of people that I'm never going to meet or interact with? Why should I be concerned about how they live if I'm not looking to infringe on their liberties in any way? I could have no effect on their lives. They'll never know that I exist. I'm concerned with me who I know exists. And then I'm concerned with the people that I meet that I also know exist and can form relationships and meaningful bonds with. I do want to increase the level of wealth for society and in all likelihood, not going to be through creating a billion dollar company. Right. But I can do it on an individual basis. I can enrich people's lives through my friendship and my relationship with them or I can sell them a product that helps them increase their own wealth and so on. And all of those things, all of those values are values that I choose. They're meaningful because I choose them. Helping people is only meaningful if you choose it as a value and then you actively uh, embark on that road. It's not kindness to force me to pay for someone to do something, you know, to, to live a certain way. That's not kindness. And in many ways, it actually robs people. We're never, people never want to have the conversation about how welfare robs people of their dignity, but it does. Especially if we end up with a UBI and people suddenly just get money for existing. The, the, the way that mucks up the incentive structures for people 
is so unbelievable. I guarantee we're going to have record suicides in the future. When you rob people of their dignity, like people want to take care of themselves. Some people yeah. don't know it, but they want to take care of themselves. They don't want to be reliant or dependent on another person. Human beings crave independence. It is mm -hmm. a very, it's inherent within us. That's why whenever they don't, whenever their heads are all mucked up with this collectivist nonsense, and they don't, they don't have the tools to recognize what's going on and they're unhappy and they don't know why, because they've reached all the virtues. They're living the way that they think they're supposed to. They're not selfish. They're sacrificing for their fellow man. Why are they so unhappy? And the reason's pretty simple. They're ignoring the person who actually matters the most in their life, which is their themselves. Yeah, they crave that independence. And, and again, even if there were a situation where if they're given that independence and they're still struggling, there's always the possibility of people voluntarily providing charity and support as, as needed. But the fear, I think, from a lot of people is that, you know, libertarians just think the poor, it's okay if they just die on the streets. You know, there's sort of this catastrophizing. Um, but, but yeah, I want to underscore what you said about, you know, no one, no one's responsible for your own happiness, your own needs. No, and no one, no one else except for you is responsible for your own happiness and your own needs. And no one else can actually do that. So no matter how selfless supposedly somebody else is to try to help you out, they can't do that as well as you can. So we might as well just as individuals all take 100% responsibility for our own needs and then interact with each other and create win-wins as opposed to the selfless doctrine, the self-sacrificial doctrine is you don't matter. You need to think about other people first. Well, how does that work? Then you have everyone's just trying to think about other people. And then there's never any honest expression about your own needs. You know, it, it's like. It's, it's a like, weapon to be used against men. The collectivist doctrine is a weapon to be used against men so that they do not trust in the power of their own minds and their own ability. When you say men, do you mean just humans? Humans, sorry. Yeah, humans, sorry. just yes. to clarify. Women too. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it reminds me, of, it's just to bring it down to a more um, mundane example. It's like if you have a group of friends and you're trying to figure out where to go to dinner and everyone's in this mindset of selflessness and just deferring to everybody else, you, you, you easily can get in this situation where people are discussing, hey, where do you want to go to dinner? You know, and then someone says, oh, well, whatever is fine with me, where, where do you want to go to dinner? And then that, 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 that question just keeps getting passed around the circle and everyone's trying to defer so that they don't seem selfish. And that, but really, everyone does have some preferences and desires, but no one's expressing that. And so you very easily could just end up in a situation where no one gets their needs, needs met. It's like, well, what's the point of that? We're, we're sacrificing honesty. You know, let's just communicate. Absolutely. You would be amazed. You'd be amazed how happy you can become and, and how quickly once you start just telling people what you would prefer in a situation, in a social setting, even you can be fine with saying, well, if someone else has a better suggestion or I'm fine yielding to someone else's suggestion, but I would like to go get tacos tonight. Um, being self-assertive, by the way, is one of the six pillars of self-esteem. I was just going to mention that one. That's funny. 
It's just simply stating what your desires are. And it's, it's fine to, to say, well, I value, uh, or to understand, I value sometimes not doing what I want to do for the sake of my group of friends, because I value my friends and this is not a big deal for me at this point, but just stating, I'd really like to get tacos tonight. Does a, it does a lot. Yeah. Brandon, who wrote the six pillars of self-esteem. Most of self, sorry. Most of self-esteem is micro actions that we do throughout the day, either micro yeah. mindset or micro behaviors that we do throughout the day. It's not major decisions because we don't have major decisions all the time, but we have micro decisions all day, every day. What you didn't say in the meeting that you could have said. Yeah. That, that you're now going to be resentful about all day or all week. What you didn't say to your spouse that you could have said or to your mother that you could have said, whatever. So. Yeah, and you're always, you're always watching yourself. You always know if you are being assertive or not. And when you do uh, assert yourself in those micro situations, then you gain a little bit of self-esteem. When you, when you say, as, Brand, as Brandon calls it, if you say yes when you want to say yes and no when you want to say no, um, that's, that's self-assertiveness. And so every time you say no when you want to say yes and vice versa, in those little situations, you lose a little bit of self-esteem. Yeah, well, so... You, 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 lose, you lose faith in yourself because you know when you have disrespected yourself or whenever you have lied to yourself and no one else might know it but you know you always know if you've gone against your desires and every now and again you might get away with it but it's like depositing you're making deposits all the time into one bank account or the other and it creates the possibility of really joyous relationships so you know, knowing your philosophy, that we share this philosophy, uh, I'm, I feel confident that when you agreed to come on this podcast, it's not out of any sort of uh, self-sacrificial duty to be a good person to uh, oblige somebody else when they make a request of you. And I, so I know that you're, you're here because you, you said, because it's in your self-interest, because you've, you've chosen to do that. It's going to bring, bring you some value. And then there's no, there's no doubting that. And then I get actually, I, it benefits me more when you're, when you're consistent in your philosophy about doing things for your own self-interest, then I know that you're hanging out with me because you are actually taking pleasure in hanging out with me. And that makes me feel better than if I'm wondering, and I've had this with people who don't share this philosophy. It's like, I'm wondering if our people being honest, do they really want to hang out with me? Uh, it's like, but when everyone just takes care of their own needs and they, they're honest, they self-assert, they say yes when they want to say yes, no when they want to say no, then it's a win-win, right? Absolutely. And it's funny. Often uh, when I help people, which by the way, I help people a lot. Yeah. Um, I will explicitly state to them that, by the way, I'm not doing this out of altruism. I'm actually very selfishly interested in this. And here's what I expect to gain from me helping you. And uh, it's just, some people, they kind of smirk because they, they know me really well. Sometimes it's someone who, you know, maybe hasn't had that kind of a direct conversation before and they're kind of perplexed a little bit. So I, ha- I, I elaborate a little bit more. Um, but I'm of the opinion that we shouldn't let go of the word selfish. I like 
that yeah. it has that kind of almost visceral reaction from people. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I think I'm duty bound throughout my life to work towards reclaiming the word selfish. Because I don't know, I, I guess there's like a doomsday, I guess I'd say it's like a doomsday scenario if it's lost. Yeah. Because we are, we are individual creatures. We do not have a hive mind. And our only fundamental obligation in this world is to live our lives, live our lives, not just exist. Yeah, Rand said that, Rand said that the highest moral purpose is happiness. And it's, I mean, reading Atlas Shrugged was such a joy for me. I think I've expressed this to you before, just, you know, how she just, she underscores just this notion of enjoying existence for its own sake, like just reveling in your own aliveness and you're, you don't need to like happiness is your birthright and you don't need to prove anything. Yeah. You want to have purpose and, and or you don't have productive achievement and an accomplishment and that contributes to it. But you know, this sort of fundamental self-worth, which is also how Brandon defines self-esteem, um, the, you know, the belief that you are worthy of happiness and then just reveling in that. I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Do you think a lot of people struggle with that in terms of giving themselves permission to be happy? I, I think so. I think because of this, this collectivist culture and the selflessness that there's often, and also just this kind of schooled mindset of like waiting for permission in general. Um, am I allowed to be happy? You know, that's a, I think that's a question that a lot of people have. And I'm curious if you have any words of words of inspiration to help people allow themselves permission to be happy. Well, I, I do think that there are an unbelievable amount of people and I can't say this on a global basis because I don't know global cultures, but at least in America, I think there are, there's just a huge amount of people who I think forgot how to be happy. Um, and a lot of them are, they're so ill-equipped to deal with life in a wealthy society because they have so much free time. They have this luxury of all this free time and so few actual problems to solve and they don't know how to deal with it and they're very miserable it's almost like this uh paradox of becoming a wealthy uh society is that you don't have to spend eight hours or sorry 12 hours 14 hours working fields and crops and taking care of the farm or foraging for your living now you work a mere eight hours and then you have all this free time and a lot of people aren't utilizing that free time, which is not to say you have to, um, you can, you know, you're permitted to relax, but they're not using that free time to develop their skills or work towards desires. They have, they've let that, they've let those desires go day by day, slowly letting it fade. You know, if someone like wants to be a, they wanted to be a musician, they want to learn how to play an instrument. Well, anyone can learn how to play an instrument. If you actually had a desire to do that, you could take one 30 minute lesson 
every single week and you will be proficient at that instrument within two to five years, depending on your learning curve. And then you can learn other instruments. Um, and the same is just with building any new skill set. It doesn't take a lot of time to do something new. Most people do not start new things. I mean, I don't know what the statistic is, but most people don't even read another book after they're done with high school. <laughs> like, not even a fiction book or not, they just don't read yeah. a single other book. They stop learning. And that's not, that's not the way the world functioned up until this experiment in public education really yeah. gotten to full force. So I, 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 I'm sort of rambling here, but I think people, I think the public education system especially makes a lot of people forget what happiness is. And then it totally misprepares them for what the world is like. And they never, they never get that back on what it means to be happy. So yeah, it's, it's, it's tragic, man. It's, it's, and that's where like I bring in the sort of em- empathetic component where when you realize that people went through 15,000 hours of schooling and they had all these assignments and books imposed upon them and their curiosity extinguished or squelched. And it, it makes a lot of sense from a cause and, a, cause and effect standpoint that people wouldn't want to read again after finally escaping the system. And it's, it's just, it's just, uh, it's very sad. And, you know, if you can, I think if someone, someone happens to be listening to this, who maybe is one of those people who hasn't read a book as an adult, you know, first of all, not having shame about that and realizing that, you know, it wasn't your fault that you went to school. It wasn't your fault that you got pushed through that meat grinder and, then just to kind of having that sense of self-acceptance for that situation, then deciding to ask yourself, you know, what am I curious about? Because that's what it comes down to. Um, it starts with curiosity and that's sort of the, the kindling, right? To develop a sense of happiness is, you know, you can't, you can't learn an instrument unless you're curious to, to learn an instrument, right? You're not going to develop that sense of happiness and fulfillment from something like that. So I, I firmly believe like, I firmly believe that my purpose on this, like my purpose on this planet is to just keep learning, whether that's new skills or new information um, or whatever. So like, I have this idea that I just want to live through, go through my life and keep doing things that I want to do. Some of them might pan out to be very successful for me. Some of them might not pan out to generate any kind of financial success at all, but there is a spiritual element to doing new things. So I, I, I'm a musician. I've played drums for 15 years now, almost. Um, but I'm, I play drums in like a metal band. <laughs> um, and I've played drums in bands for years. And so I'm going to release an album with my band. Maybe that goes somewhere. Maybe it doesn't, but it's something that I want to do. And something that will be it will you know last beyond me the the digital recordings will exist beyond me some archaeologist ten thousand years from now might come across this digital recording because they're searching for like self-released music from human beings from the 2000s during the the opening stages of the digital age and they're going to find this music right that i wrote potentially maybe not who cares but likewise i'm taking piano lessons 
Um, I, I just do a lot of stuff because I enjoy it. Um, and that's all I want to do with my life is not do things I hate. And if I find that I'm doing something and I start to hate it to not do it for very long and actively seek out things that I enjoy or think I might enjoy. So one last point here that relates to that is, and it relates to the theme of this podcast, which is, you know, taking a, a personal development or a personal empowerment stance as not only a way to help make your life happier, but I can, that can actually have ripple effects on the world. So what would your response be to someone though, who says, Oh, well, that's nice Mitchell that you are taking those piano lessons and you're engaging activities that bring you joy. But I can name you, you know, three dozen major crises or world problems and atrocities that are happening right now. And I want to make sure to solve those, not just have a happy life for myself. You know, do you think there's a connection there? Do you act, would you actually rebuttal that by saying pursuing your selfish ends is actually a way to solve some of those problems? Well, absolutely. Most of the problems in the world most of the problems in the world are philosophical, number one, but most of the actual like atrocities that are happening in the world are not being done by the, you know, by someone who believes in individualism. They're being done by people and governments who have policies that praise collectivist mindsets. So if I'm actively living my philosophy for the world and I'm not hurting anybody, and I come across other people who befriend me, form relationships with me, who maybe didn't think this way, but they just enjoy the way that I live my life. They, they, you know, vicariously, and they want to be better people as a result of it. They want to become more of an individualist and advocate for the same ideas. The only way that we can do anything about these atrocities, which are largely out of our hands, is by continuing my mind by mind, person by person, to advocate for the ideas which are saving the world. That's the only way. We're not going to do it by going to, you know, some dictatorial nation and lobbying for change. We can't do it through regime, through forced regime change. We can only do it by being so successful that people in other countries are looking over the fence at us and saying, wow, we want that. And then they make the changes themselves that are necessary. Some leader finally gets the, the, the right you know, traction that they need with the right ideas and says, we're going to implement those ideas for our nation. And that's been happening. Singapore is one great example. Singapore for all intents and purposes is a dictatorship. We don't call it that, but I mean, it's one family. Um, people technically have the right to vote there, but we don't call it a dictatorship because the people there are so, so largely free to, you know, explore their own desires and, and, and you know, create businesses um, that they are just a you know, thriving metropolis. And that's because when they set up their system, they looked around the world at what systems work best and they said, this is the system that works best. So there's a, there's a lot to be said for being, for just being so free and so successful 
that in, that you create envy, but you also create enough envy that people are looking over the fence and saying, we actually want to do that. We don't hate you for doing that. We want to do that. And so, yeah, I guess my answer is live my life the way that I see fit, deliberately create a life that serves me and mind by mind, convince others that they should be doing the same. Respecting their other, respecting the rights of other individuals, not initiating force against them as a moral conviction, not defrauding people or stealing from people, either through government or, you know, directly yourself. These are not, these are not hard rules by which to live. Absolutely. And it creates win-win, you know, just take, again, take care of your needs, be responsible for your own happiness. And then become so happy that other people become happy too. I mean, I, I heard that, I saw that once in like a tea bag, like, <laughs> but it's a real thing. And it's, it's, it's well, also it really empowering. It's contagious. It's contagious. it's contagious. Yeah. And it's also so much in your hands. Like, I think there's a lot of people who just feel just helpless or they feel devastated or they feel frustrated. And it's like, yeah, everyone gets dealt different cards, you know, and we can't control that. And some people objectively have uh, certain obstacles that are more difficult than others because of those cards. But at any given moment, you have the choice to think. You have the choice to engage your mind. You have the choice to operate within your sphere of control. And it's just right in front of you. Like you can turn off the news. You can stop trying to, to, to make this massive sweeping change from the whole world. And actually... If you want to do that, just worry about yourself, but it's just going to, ha- that massive change will happen over time. So you just got to get over that sort of temptation to try to have this quick fix, which I think is a temptation that comes from legislation, that the impulse for legislation, let's make this policy to change everything. No, that's not going to work. That's going to be coercive. It's not going to work. It's going to make it worse. Let's go the other direction. Just focus on your own life become happy, sort your own life out. World peace starts with a clean bedroom. Yeah, it does. There, and, and I guess I, I would just add that there are a lot of things that we can't control, each of us. But I, will, I very much believe that there is a lot more that we can control than most of us think about our daily lives most people are missing so much about what they can actually control. Uh, And, and if they, if they took some time to reflect on the things that they think they can control, but they actually can, uh, they, they would be very impressed with themselves because if you only, if you only, you know, move forward towards your agenda one inch per day, you're going to be a lot further in a year than if you never start moving forward toward your agenda at all. Speaking my language, Mitchell Broderick, you can follow him on Twitter at Mitch underscore Broderick, B-R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K. I'll have that in the show notes. You can also find him on Facebook. So thanks so much, Mitchell, for taking the time. And this has been a blast, so appreciate it. Thanks, Joel. Have a good night. 